Well, it is that time that we come to the preaching and teaching of God's word. And we can begin by saying this, the word of God, both Old Testament and new, depicts the kingdom of God as a future reality so that when we pray, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for the arrival of the promised kingdom that will come about at the second coming of Christ. And when that kingdom comes, it will be a glorious kingdom when Christ will take his seat on his glorious throne, the very throne of David, and will finally rule and reign from and over all the earth. When all of the covenant promises will finally come to fruition. When the new covenant will finally be applied to national Israel and she will finally walk in enduring covenant faithfulness and will finally be a blessing to all the nations as they stream to Jerusalem to be taught of Christ. When justice and righteousness will be administered in all the earth. When the just and righteous reign of Christ will extend into all the earth through the church that reigns with him, a perfectly and completely righteous government. When all of the political significance of the kingdom of God is finally realized, when the knowledge of God will fill all the earth, and when the earth itself will finally be liberated from the curse to which it was subjected in the fall of man, then and at that time will the kingdom have finally come. And that means this, that the kingdom hasn't yet come, that this isn't the kingdom, and that the kingdom only comes when the king comes. And with that firmly in place, there are two critical implications that necessarily follow. And it's these two implications that shape the entire trajectory of the application of scripture's teaching on the kingdom of God and will facilitate us answering the question, what about the kingdom now? The first concerns the advancement of the kingdom because if the kingdom is undeniably future and only comes when Christ comes, then the question is, what can we legitimately claim as kingdom advancement? How does the kingdom advance during this present age? And it's with a biblical expectation surrounding the kingdom of God that we can answer that question. And the other concerns present manifestations or previews of the coming kingdom. Because if the kingdom is again, undeniably future, then the question is, can we point to legitimate and present manifestations or previews of the kingdom? And if so, how? And again, it's with a biblical expectation surrounding the kingdom of God that we can answer that question as well. And what I think you'll find is that your theology of the kingdom has massive implications for your life. That it's both intensely practical and intensely relevant. And that if your theology of the kingdom is wrong, it has the potential to fundamentally alter the very nature of your mission between the two comings of Christ. 
and to render you both ineffective and unfruitful. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to address these two implications, both kingdom advancement and kingdom previews. And then under the banner of kingdom previews, we're going to address five realms, the political realm, the church, the home, the workplace, and we'll touch on the culture. And we're going to do this to demonstrate where the rubber meets the road with respect to a biblical theology of the kingdom that we would be both faithful and fruitful in preparation for the arrival of the kingdom to the glory of God and for the glory of God. And so if you're taking notes, jot this down. Kingdom advancement, kingdom advancement. And the question is this, if the kingdom is undeniably future and only comes when Christ comes, then how does the kingdom advance in this present age? What can we legitimately claim as kingdom advancement? And the answer is this, that the kingdom advances as the gospel of the kingdom goes forth with power and bears fruit in the lives of God's people, both in salvation and in sanctification. And I think you'll see this. Let's deal with salvation first. The kingdom advances As the number of kingdom citizens increases, the kingdom advances. As the number of kingdom citizens increases. And so where can we ground that? Well, look at Colossians chapter one for a moment. We'll look at a couple of different passages today at various points throughout our time. But look at Colossians 1, 13 and 14. We're gonna establish the reality that when we come to Christ, we become kingdom citizens, citizens of the king and therefore citizens of the kingdom that is to come. And we see this in Colossians 1.13 and following where it says this, for he, that is the father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so in salvation, We receive a new citizenship. We have been transferred out of the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of Christ. And this citizenship is a heavenly citizenship. In fact, we see that in Philippians 3. So one epistle back, Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. And this is going to not only state that our citizenship is in heaven, but it's going to actually tie the consummation of that citizenship to our glorification and the subjection of all things to Christ. So Philippians 3 verse 20 says this, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has to even to subject all things to himself. In these two verses, not only is our citizenship identified as being in heaven, but again, it even connects the full realization of that citizenship with our future glorification and the subjection of all things to Christ. And when does that happen? at the second coming of Christ, when he establishes his kingdom. And so in salvation, we become 
citizens of the kingdom that is to come. And with the addition of every newly transferred citizen, the kingdom what? Advances. Which is why it's often said the kingdom advances one soul at a time. Every time a person comes to saving faith in Christ and is transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son, the kingdom is increasing. It's, in, it's advancing because the citizens are increasing. But the kingdom doesn't only advance in salvation. It also advances in sanctification. As kingdom citizens are conformed evermore into the image of Christ. And so how can we make that claim? Well, for one, when the kingdom comes, we will be in the glorified condition, entirely conformed into the image of Christ, made fit to rule and reign with him. And so it logically follows that as we make progress toward that ultimate goal, the kingdom is advancing because we're becoming ever more what we will be when the kingdom comes. And for two, because as we're sanctified, we become more useful and fruitful in the salvation and sanctification of others and therefore can make greater and greater contributions to the advancement of the kingdom. You see, though God is sovereign over both salvation and sanctification, both take place by means of human agency. And as we're transformed into the image of Christ, we become more effective instruments in the hands of God to advance the kingdom. And so the kingdom advances as citizens are added to the kingdom and as those citizens are sanctified. And that means this, that the kingdom advances by means of what? The great commission, the gospel, because the great commission can be summed up in the salvation and sanctification of God's people. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. just listen. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Their salvation. A disciple only becomes a disciple through the gospel and faith in Christ. And then Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Their sanctification, instruction that results in ever-increasing obedience to the word of God. Obedience and sanctification, conformity to Christ go hand in hand. And so we want to apply this. We want to apply the significance of this to a couple of issues. Let's start here. How many spheres of authority are there? How many distinct spheres of authority are there? There are three. You've got the family, the government, and the church. So if the kingdom advances by means of the great commission, which sphere of authority is primary to the advancement of the kingdom? It's the church. It's the church. We could ask it like this. Do healthy families result in healthy churches or do healthy churches result in healthy families? Healthy churches result in healthy families. And really, there are a number of ways to illustrate this. For one, 
Of the three spheres of authority, which one predates the fall? Only one does, it's the family. And so a case can be made that both the church and government are only necessary due to the fall. That success in the context of the family is dependent on both church and government. Now, why would that be? Because in a fallen world, the family needs the government to protect it from lawlessness and needs the church to overcome the effects of sin. And so whereas the government is in place to bring about law and order, the church is in place to bring about salvation and sanctification. And so it's the church that is God's primary instrument in the plan of redemption, not the family. For two, our personal sanctification which is a a measure of kingdom advancement, is critically dependent on the interconnectedness of the body, the body of Christ, the vital working of each and every member. In fact, I wanna show you just three verses in Ephesians 4, so turn there for a moment. And really, as we come to Ephesians 4, we could begin all the way back in verse seven and talk about the, the gift of Christ, that he has given certain things to the church, to the building up of the body, that we would reach maturity. But let's just look at verse 14 and following. Ephesians 4, verse 14. Notice the mutual interdependence that we have on each other. It says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. There is a glorious interdependence, mutual dependence that we have on each other in the body of Christ that is critical to the growth of the whole body and therefore of each individual part. And so we are critically dependent upon the church for our spiritual growth. For three, the primary means of grace in the life of the believer is the preaching of God's word. The primary means of grace in the life of the believer is the preaching of God's word and the preaching of God's word is a vital function of what? Not the family, but the church. For four, the great commission isn't a responsibility that's ultimately given to the family. The great commission isn't a responsibility ultimately given to the family. The great commission is a responsibility given to what? The church, of course, families participate in that because oftentimes churches are made up of families, but nevertheless, it's the church corporate that has the responsibility in the Great Commission. And for five, men like me aren't the byproduct of godly families. Men like me are not the byproduct of godly families. I was not raised in a Christian home. I didn't come to faith until I was 23. My life is the product of the church, of the ministry of the church. 
It's, it's the means of the church that God has used in my life to make me the man that I am. A family can't even do that. In fact, even as I have the responsibility of investing in my sons and discipling my sons, I have no power or ability to duplicate and replicate myself in them. No power whatsoever. I can instruct, I can lead, I can teach, I can model, I can sow into their lives. But I have no ability beyond that to make anything happen. And I couldn't even take all that I've been invested with, all of the growth that's been poured into me by multiple members of the body and replicate that in the home. It's impossible. It's the church. The church is absolutely primary in advancing the kingdom. It's the church that brings redemption to the family. It's the church that instructs the family. It's the church that feeds into the family. And it's the church that produces healthy families. And one more point of application under this heading of kingdom advancement. And the question is this, can positive political reform be claimed as kingdom advancement? Can positive political reform be claimed as kingdom advancement? And we have to be careful here. This answer requires precision. But since the political aspects of the kingdom of God only come to fruition when Christ comes with his kingdom, we can say no. Political reform in and of itself can't be claimed as kingdom advancement. Because when Christ comes, all of the political structures of this world will cease to exist. And an entirely new government will be established in its place and it will be a phenomenal government, a perfect government. Now, having said that, here's where the precision comes. Positive political reform can be an effect can be an evidence of the kingdom advancing. Positive political reform can be a fruit, an effect, or evidence of the kingdom advancing. As the kingdom advances through salvation and sanctification, it can have a positive impact on the political realm. And there are Numerous examples of that throughout history where the gospel has broken in on a society, on a people, on a nation, and has borne wonderful fruit and has reformed that society. Even in the stand that we took here in our own province, that stand that we took as a church has had a positive political impact. The political climate in Alberta, at least for a moment, has, has improved as a direct result of the stand that we took. Of course, the question is, how long will that last? But the point is this, positive political reform can be an effect of the kingdom advancing, and it did advance, even in our stand, both in salvation and in sanctification. And we can also say this, that as the gospel takes root in society, it can positively impact government, which in turn can further facilitate accomplishing the Great Commission. I'll say it again, that as the gospel takes root in society, it can positively impact government, which in turn can further facilitate the completion of the Great Commission, the accomplishing of the Great Commission. You see, a case can be made 
that the Great Commission can flourish in political climates that are favorable to the gospel. And in that sense, political reform isn't kingdom advancement, but rather facilitates kingdom advancement because it facilitates the Great Commission. Now, there are just two caveats you have to add to that. One is that persecution often results in the advancement of the kingdom. So when you look at the Bible and Acts or throughout history, it's often under intense persecution that the gospel goes forth with greater power. And we saw that even in our own stand here in our province. And two is that the gospel can flourish in spite of unfavorable political climates. And the example of that would be China. China is an awful political climate. And yet the gospel seems to be working in China all the same. The leaven of the gospel of the kingdom is continuing to work in that country and bringing God's people to salvation and Lord willing to sanctification as well. And so we don't even need a favorable political climate for the advancement of the kingdom the gospel will be effective all the same. And we need to say this, that though positive political reform is a potential effect of kingdom advancement, it isn't an inevitable one. That though positive political reform is a potential effect of kingdom advancement, it isn't an inevitable one. And so think of China again. There's no guarantee that the political climate of China will ever change. There's no guarantee the gospel will ever bring about a a total reform of that government. But nevertheless, that gospel will continue to go forth, will continue to bear fruit, and will continue to be effective. The kind of change, the kind of impact that would alter a, a country's entire political trajectory demands a, a certain level of scale that is nowhere promised in scripture and is relatively rare throughout history. There are few examples of that. And so that's the theology of the kingdom applied to the advancement of the kingdom. The kingdom of God advances as citizens are added to the kingdom and as those citizens are sanctified. And that means this, that the kingdom advances by means of the great commission that the church is God's primary instrument in advancing the kingdom, that positive political reform by definition isn't kingdom advancement, but rather that positive political reform can be evidence of kingdom advancement and can facilitate kingdom advancement, even though it isn't an inevitable result of kingdom advancement. Now you say, okay, James, I'm tracking with you. But are there any present realities that we can claim as legitimate manifestations of the kingdom? Realities that preview the coming kingdom. And that leads us to our second heading, which is kingdom previews. Kingdom previews. And for this, you need to recall what the kingdom will be like when it comes. And from that, work backwards. We know what the kingdom will be like when it arrives. So with that picture in place, we take that picture and apply it backwards into the present. 
And we know that when the kingdom comes, the will of God will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Christ rules and reigns from and over all the earth. And as citizens of the kingdom, it's our aim and ambition that Christ would rule and reign over every aspect of our lives now. That he would reign supreme. And when he does, that's a little preview of the kingdom. A present manifestation of the kingdom that is to come. And from there, we can isolate various realms of human existence so that when the rule and reign of Christ is evident in a particular realm, it becomes a preview of the kingdom. And so the idea is this, that though the kingdom is definitely future and only comes when Christ comes, that when things this side of his coming are rightly ordered under his word, we get a preview, a foretaste, a shadow of what it will be like when he comes. And it's that idea that we want to apply to various realms of human existence, to politics, to the church, the home, the workplace, and to even touch on an element of the culture. And so let's start with the political realm. The political realm. And I think we can say this, that a godly nation provides a preview of the coming kingdom. That when you have a God-fearing government, a godly administration of the law, a society that's governed by God's word, a godly church, a godly home, that when you have those realities, that what you have is a preview of the kingdom that is to come. In fact, hypothetically, if you were going to start a nation from scratch, how would you do that? How would you order it? What standard of law would you use? Would you order it under God's word? Or would you say, no, that would be a violation of the separation between church and state? Tell you what I would do. I would order that nation entirely under the word of God. I would ensure that the word of God shaped every aspect of that nation's existence, that it would be the law of God properly administered under the new covenant that would govern that nation. And to the extent that it did, you would have a preview of the coming kingdom of God, a foretaste of what it will be like when Christ comes with his kingdom. Now, the biggest challenge in that is deciding what form of government you're gonna use. Are you gonna go with a democratic republic like the US or a monarchy like the UK or, or what? And really, when you begin to delve into that question, it's here that you realize that the kingdom can't come until Christ comes. Because no form of human government can guarantee an enduring and God-fearing government. Every form of human government will inevitably fail. Just consider the U.S. for a moment. That nation had as bad a good a start as any nation since Israel under David and Solomon. 
And that train is going off the rails. Every aspect of that country and its government is so infected with the spirit of antichrist that there may not be any way back. Every level of U.S. government is completely corrupt. The White House, the Congress, both the House and Senate, the judicial system, the entire Justice Department, the FBI, CIA, the Department of Health, the military-industrial complex, from top to bottom, the whole thing is completely ruined. And that says nothing of the depravity of the public, the corruption of the media, the corruption of corporate America, the corruption of the arts, and all of the powers that be who work from the inside and out to destroy that nation, including Satan himself. A simple change in presidency is merely cosmetic at this point in time. And really, if any nation had a chance, it was Israel. And yet their story is no different. They simply couldn't keep the train on the tracks. And so the best form of government is a righteous dictator who is all-powerful and who has conquered the grave never to die again, and who can bring about the complete cessation of the activity of Satan. And there's only one that has those credentials, and it's who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And his reign is yet future. But all that to say that a godly nation governed by the sound rule of law that enjoys peace and prosperity is a little preview of the kingdom of Christ foretaste, a shadow of things to come. And I want to just touch on a few other matters of politics that come to bear upon this a little bit. Let's say this, that every civil magistrate is both responsible and accountable to God to govern in accord with God's word. Whether it's a prime minister, a president, a premier, a city council person, whoever it is, the civil magistrate is under obligation being both responsible and accountable to God to govern in accord with the word of God. And that's not that difficult to prove. In the first place, all authority originates with who? God, Romans 13.1. So the civil magistrate governs with a delegated authority. And in the second place, government is a minister of God, Romans 13.4. So it is God's servant or deacon in the world. And that means that governments are both responsible and accountable to God to govern in accord with his word and will be held accountable on the judgment day. And so the question is this, what's the church's responsibility with respect to the government? What's the church's responsibility with respect to the government? Well, there are two. One, the church is called on to pray. First Timothy 2, 1 and following, just listen. First of all, then, 
I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all dignity, in all godliness and dignity, rather. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we are tasked by God to pray for governing authorities, to pray for their salvation, to pray for their repentance. Even the text itself leads one there where it says this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we are to pray for their salvation. Why? Because if they're saved, they're going to govern in a manner that's more consistent with the word of God because they're gonna be under the rule and reign of Christ from the heart where Christ will be Lord of their life and they'll be aware of their accountability to God and the need to govern in accord with his word. And so we must pray. But also, the church has a responsibility to employ its prophetic voice by declaring the word of God and calling the civil authorities both to repentance and to govern as they ought to govern. The church is the pillar in support of what? The truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. And so we have a responsibility as the prophetic voice of God to declare the word of God to the governing authorities, calling them to repentance and informing them of their God-given responsibility, even pointing them to the coming day of judgment when they'll be held accountable for their governance. And really this is a responsibility that primarily refers to preachers and their pulpit ministries. There's a responsibility for the word of God to speak to the governing authorities and to call them to God's standard in his word. But here's another question. Should the church as a corporate entity be heavily involved in politics? Should a church as a corporate entity be heavily involved in politics where politics becomes a distinct ministry of the church? And I think the obvious answer is no. That a biblical ecclesiology as revealed in God's word doesn't yield a ministry of politics. Instead, political involvement falls to us as individuals. That a measure of political involvement in a so-called democratic system like ours is an individual or familial responsibility. And some are going to be more politically engaged than others. But nevertheless, a degree of political engagement is probably the responsibility of each and every one of us. We should at least vote, certainly. In fact, I would even say this, that we need more godly Christians to run for, gov for government, to pursue politics. We need more salt and light in the political realm where individuals who are going to govern in accord with the word of God are pursuing office in order to be salt and light in our province and nation in order that there might be an effort to bring the government in closer alignment with the word of God. 
I think our province and country would be greatly served by godly politicians. But even having said that, I should probably say this, that those of you who are less politically minded need to be patient with those who are more politically minded. And conversely, those of you who are more politically minded need to be patient with those who are less politically minded. And that's because this issue is a a to each his own. The, The scriptures don't spell out just how involved we need to be. That's something that we get to work out as individuals and families. But the main point is this, that a godly nation provides a kingdom preview of things to come. That as a nation is brought into submission to the word of God, and governs in accord with that word, where all of the the aspects of society are brought into alignment with the word of God, in that you receive a little preview of the kingdom that, that is to come. Now let's address the church. The church, and we'll move a little more quickly now. A godly church provides a preview of the kingdom. How so? Because a godly church will manifest the kingdom ethic or conduct in its relationships with one another. Recognizing that in the kingdom will be in the glorified condition, will be perfect and will therefore be entirely conformed into the image of Christ. And so the more sanctified a church is, the more like Christ it will be and the more it will be a preview of the kingdom that is to come. So let's paint the picture of a godly church for a moment. Well, Christ is the head of the church, Colossians 1.18. And so a godly church will be properly ordered under the headship of Christ, where the word of God will govern every aspect of its life. It will have biblically qualified elders. It will have a pulpit ministry that is submitted to the word of God. And it will have ministries that are entirely committed to the ongoing discipleship and the great commission. But in addition to that, it will also be characterized by godly conduct where each member of the body puts on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience where each member bears with one another and forgives each other just as Christ has forgiven them where love reigns supreme as that which is the perfect bond of unity. And then beyond that, it'll be characterized by sacrificial service, where each member of the body is intensely devoted to the sanctification of the whole, where each member of the body serves the body to the edification of the body, and where each member of the body is preoccupied with the interests of others. And when you have a church that functions like that, you have a little preview of the kingdom because you're seeing the conduct of the kingdom, the ethic of the kingdom be practically played out, really to be on full display. And I want to illustrate this with an amazing irony that's expressed in the negative. Right now, in churches all over North America and beyond, congregations are divided over their view of the kingdom. And in numerous cases are even splitting 
Consider the irony of that. That looks nothing like the kingdom. We get a preview of the kingdom when a church dwells together and manifests the kingdom ethic. And yet there are congregations potentially all over the world quarreling over their view of the kingdom, even to the point of a break in the fellowship. I mean, that just shouldn't be. That's a complete contradiction in terms. Our gatherings, our fellowships should be marked by the kingdom ethic. The, 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 the kingdom that is to come should be previewed here as we are under the rule and reign of Christ and dwell together in harmony and love and unity. And when we do, we are a preview of the kingdom that is to come. That's the church. What about the home? The home, well, a godly home also provides a preview of the kingdom. You say, but the kingdom, in the kingdom, we will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but will be like angels, Mark 12, 25. Okay, fair objection. But there is a marriage that will be a reality in the kingdom. The marriage between Christ and who? The church. And the earthly marriage is a picture of the heavenly one, Ephesians 5, 32. When in the kingdom, we will walk in perfect submission to our head, our loving head. And so as a husband functions as a loving head, exercising godly authority and leadership in the home, and as the wife submits to her earthly head as to the Lord, you have a little picture of the kingdom and what it will be like when the kingdom comes. And beyond that, the very same realities that are to characterize the church ought also to characterize the home, the the virtues that ought to characterize our relationships ought to characterize the husband and wife relationship. Or even the relationship between the siblings, for example, and so forth. A godly home provides a kingdom preview of things to come. Where the word of God ought to reign supreme in the life of the family and should govern every aspect of its existence. And when it does again, you've got a little picture of the kingdom. That's the home. Now, what about the workplace? The workplace. Well, there's going to be work in the kingdom, both in the millennial kingdom and in the eternal state. There is going to be work in the kingdom. Work is good. And so a godly workplace provides a preview of the coming kingdom. And there are examples in this congregation alone where godly work environments have been established, where business owners are aiming to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and where it's evident that God is multiplying their fruitfulness. And again, that is a preview of the kingdom. Only when the kingdom comes, fruitfulness will take on a whole new meaning because the earth will become like the Garden of Eden and will yield its fruit like it did pre-fall. But nevertheless, when a workplace now is a godly workplace where the word of God and the principles of God's word are shaping the way that business is being done and even the way the 
employees interact with each other. You got a little preview of the kingdom. And I would just say this, that it would be wise to cultivate an entrepreneurial spirit and really to decrease our dependence on the, the secular system as it relates to employment. We, we need Christians to start businesses, businesses that can employ other Christians so that when Christians are being fired because they're not receiving a vaccine, for example, you've got businesses that can provide employment for those individuals. And we had that here at Grace Life Church over the last couple of years. And so we need to work toward establishing businesses that are gonna be fruitful and are going to provide even as things potentially become more hostile around us. And I would also say this, that if you have a business or you're going to start a new business, think of it as a preview of the kingdom. Order that business under the word of God. Let the principles of God's word shape everything that you do and use that business for the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom through the great commission. You'd be doing that. You'll be demonstrating how even your work ties directly in to the advancement of the kingdom. That's the workplace. Now, what about the culture? The culture. Well, in some senses, we've already addressed the culture because we talked about the political realm. And more could certainly be said about the culture. But I want to address a particular issue. I want to address what is often called the culture war. Because I want our theology of the kingdom to be applied to that war. Now, some of you are saying, James, what's the culture war? The culture war, in its simplest sense, is the war between the political right and the political left. In fact, one source defines it like this. A culture war is a cultural conflict between social groups and the struggle for dominance of their values, beliefs, and practices. It commonly refers to topics on which there is general societal disagreement and polarization in societal values. That's the culture war. And the culture war is raging as we speak. And maybe in my lifetime, I would say in my lifetime, has never raged more than it's raging right now. And so the question is this, are we the church in a culture war? Or even for you as an individual, are you as an individual in the culture war? And I would say no. Instead, we're in a truth war. And that's an important distinction to make. In fact, listen to Paul on this point. He says this, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and following, for though we walk in the flesh that is in the body, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You see, we have a responsibility 
to destroy the ideological fortresses that are raised up against the knowledge of God. But that's the task of a believer. Only a believer can do that. And yet on either side of the culture war, both on the left and the right, you've got unbelievers. The culture war that's currently taking place right now, in many respects, is a, an intramural discussion between unbelievers. And so we should engage in the culture war to the extent that that war intersects with the truth and should do so for the purpose of testifying to the truth and calling people to repentance and faith in Christ. And so should we engage in the culture war? I would say absolutely, but we're there to represent the truth and to call people to repentance on either side of that war because we're in a truth war, not the culture war. You see, when it comes to the culture war, that isn't a war that we need to win. And winning that war doesn't necessarily advance the kingdom, but the truth war is when we have to win. And the way to win that war is to be faithful all the way to the end, to go all the way to the grave or the coming of Christ, being faithful to the truth, testifying to the truth, testifying to the world that its deeds are evil, calling the world to repentance, whether on the left or the right. And as we do that, we'll be being faithful because we'll be seeking the advancement of the kingdom. And so we have a number of ways that we can get a glimpse of the kingdom that is to come, whether it be in the political realm, the church, the home, or the workplace. As each realm is brought under the rule and reign of Christ, we get a little preview of what it will be like when his kingdom comes. And here's the thing. When the church, the home, and the workplace are ordered under God's word as they should be, each one facilitates the advancement of the kingdom because they become avenues for the advancement of the great commission as people are both saved and sanctified. And that means this, that you can view every aspect of your life through the lens of the kingdom and through the lens of the advancement of the kingdom. You just need to see how everything that you do works to the advancement of the Great Commission. Whether that be in our church, your home, the workplace, our province, our nation, or around the world, you want to be able to connect everything that you do to the Great Commission. And then as your home, your business, and our church become ever more reflective of the coming kingdom, they will become ever more fruitful in advancing the kingdom and will ultimately be catalysts for the completion and realization of the Great Commission. So when it comes down to it, having a biblical theology of the kingdom is critical to understanding our mission. And our mission is the Great Commission, and that mission is the salvation and sanctification of God's people. And so we need to be as serious as a heart attack on fulfilling that mission and seeking the true advancement of the kingdom of God. And then even as we see 
life this side of the coming of Christ and this side of the coming kingdom look a little bit like the kingdom that is to come, we're seeing a little preview of the kingdom that is to come. A little shadow of what it will be like when Christ comes in his kingdom. And that gives him glory and further facilitates us completing the Great Commission. So there's the Bible's theology of the kingdom applied to this life, to this age, to politics, to the church, to the home, to the workplace, to the culture, and beyond. And effectively, that concludes our study of the kingdom of God and brings this series to an end. Now, I said this to the first service, so I'll say it to you. You have been a phenomenal congregation. To be able to sit under this series, the length of the sermons, the meatiness of the sermons, the way that you have come under the teaching and preaching of God's word is commendable. And so I commend you for the way that you have received God's word on the kingdom. And I do that to the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you again for this time in your word, this time devoted to this subject of the kingdom and the clarity that it's brought both with respect to the kingdom itself and even how we are to understand this present age and our mission. And so, Father, we pray that you would continue to help us to be faithful all the way to the end, that you would be honored and glorified in all that we do and that we would truly be used by you to advance your kingdom here on earth as we put our hand to the plow on the great commission and seek to win souls for Christ and then see them be sanctified by teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. And so help us to do that faithfully, we pray. And we ask it in Christ's name, amen.